Good morning. Well, as you can see on the handout, we are continuing the most encouraging and uplifting series ever. We've done two classes where it's been all judgment and welcome aboard. This is the third class. Today's class is entitled Pictures of Judgment. So very uplifting, very encouraging. Last week we looked at uh, chapters 8 in the beginning of 9, and we looked at reaping the whirlwind, and we looked at reasons why they would have faced the wrath of God and how they would face that. This week, your outline isn't so much uh, making an argument. It's more of an exegetical outline. It's just kind of giving you the divisions of the, of the section or of this section. Because we're covering such a large swath, it's kind of hard to put them all together into one cohesive message other than its judgment. So these are similes or metaphors that Hosea draws to begin every section, the three primary sections. And he's just going to use a metaphor to begin the section, and then he's going to go on talking about the judgment. All right? So let's begin. Let's begin. Pictures of judgment. The first one, by the way, we're doing um, chapter 9, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 10 this morning. So let's start chapter 9, verse 10. He says, well, let me give you the first one. First picture. Israel is like wild grapes. Israel is like wild grapes. Chapter 9, verse 10, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. This is an allusion back to the Exodus out of Egypt. And he's reminding them of a time where God took great joy and delight in the nation of Israel, specifically immediately following the Exodus. Because if you know Exodus, after a little while, he wasn't so pleased with them anymore. But he took great delight when he delivered them. Just as a traveler that travels through the wilderness, if you were traveling through the wilderness and you didn't have any provision with you and you found a bunch of wild grapes, you might be pretty happy about it. God was very delighted with Israel. And he continues that idea, verse 10 again. He said, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Forefathers here is just a reference to those who came out of Egypt. And they were the earliest fruit on a fig tree. Anybody do gardening? Anybody? Any gardeners in the room? Attempted, okay. Well, I have, I have a brown thumb too. I kill every plant I have except for weeds. Um, but if you're a gardener and you go out into your garden and you see fruit hanging off your plants or tomatoes or whatever you're growing, that brings you delight. You're happy about it. If you have fig trees and you go out and you find figs on your tree, that brings joy, that brings happiness. And God looks at the forefathers, the people who came out of Egypt, and he said they were like the first figs of the season. They were pleasing. And he's reminding them of the wilderness so he can remind them of his provision, of his care for them, how he provided for them. Exodus 15, 22, he provided them fresh water. Exodus 16, he rained bread from heaven. 
Deuteronomy 32.10, he says, He found him, speaking of Israel, in a desert land, in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Jeremiah 31, verse 2, it says, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. He provided everything they needed. He loved them. He cared for them. He fed them. Verse 10 again, But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. I need someone who'd like to read Numbers 25. I'm going to read nice and loud. Autumn? Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. What is Baal Peor? That's in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, and it's going to explain what they did when they came out of Egypt. We've been talking about this, thank you by the way, we've been talking about this false worship of Baal and how in 2 Kings they were worshiping this God and they were building idols to him and sacrificing to him. That worship began way back in Numbers, in Numbers 25. And he actually says they devoted themselves to shame in Hosea 9.10. Shame here is a reference to Baal. It's a reference to this false god. The term here for shame just refers to falling into disgrace, to be humiliated. To worship Baal was disgraceful. It was shameful. Jeremiah 3.24, But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. They were spending all of their money, all of their wealth on sacrificing to Baal. We read previously in Hosea, they would get new grain, they would get wine, God would bless them, and how would they re, what would they do with it? They'd turn around and sacrifice it. They would get gold and silver, and they turn around and turn that into an idol so they can bow down and worship it. Hosea 2, verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, here it is, which they used for Baal. Hosea 9, verse, uh, yeah, Hosea 9, verse 10 again. And they became as detestable as that which they love. They went from wild grapes, where God was pleased and delighted to have them, to being detestable. He abhorred them. He viewed them as something like a monster, a horror. This is a term used to describe pagan gods, pagan deities. Uh, 1 Kings 11.5, For Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Same term. Israel became just like the gods that they worshipped. The same term, detestable, is used in Zechariah 9, verse 7. He uses it to describe filth. 
And by filth, he means impure food that's caught between somebody's teeth. Not wild grapes anymore, are they? Detestable. Gross. They're a horror in the eyes of God. In verse 10, he said, they became as detestable as that which they loved. Does that remind you of anything out of the Psalms? They became like what they loved. Who knows their Psalms really well? Psalm 115, those, speaking of idols, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. This isn't a progressive change. When he talks about this in Hosea 9, he's not talking about a progressive changing. Like over time, they became detestable. This was almost immediately. As soon as they began to worship Baal, they became detestable. Yahweh had a zero tolerance for idolatry. And that idolatry began way back in the wilderness, and it continued all the way through their history, all the way up into Hosea's day. Verse 11, As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. Ephraim here again is just a reference to the northern kingdom. It, Ephraim's their largest tribe. And this is God's response to their idolatry. He says their glory will fly away. They used to believe, Israel used to believe, that their glory was Yahweh himself. But that changed. Jeremiah 2 verse 11, has a nation changed God's? When they were not gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They walked away from Yahweh, they left him, they put aside his glory, and they went to something else. In fact, Yahweh's presence, his glory was epitomized by the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? Two stone tablets that Moses had were put in the Ark of the Covenant. And throughout their early history, having the Ark of the Covenant was a big deal. And they saw it kind of like a good luck charm, that when they went into battle, they would take the Ark of the Covenant with them so they wouldn't lose. Well, they did that in 1 Samuel 4. They thought if they brought the Ark of the Covenant, they wouldn't lose anymore. I believe they were battling the Philistines. Well, it didn't work. They ended up losing the Ark of the Covenant. But notice what 1 Samuel 4, 22 says. Phineas's wife said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. In her mind, the ark symbolized the presence of Yahweh. And losing the ark was losing his glory, losing his presence. By Hosea's day, they didn't measure their glory by the presence of Yahweh. They measured their glory, they viewed their glory as having wealth, new wine, grain, having children. If we have a lot of descendants, if we have a lot of kids, that means we have a lot of glory. That's why they worship Baal, who's a fertility god. Notice the end of verse 11. Their glory is going to fly away. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. 
How's their glory going to fly away? He's going to cut off their lineage. And the phrase, the terms he uses here, they would have no birth, refers to the act of actually giving birth. They would have no pregnancies. Literally, they would have no children in the womb. And then the, the last one, no conception. That's obvious. They won't be able to conceive children. Barrenness would fall on the nation. And even if someone did manage to conceive, to get pregnant, or even to give birth, notice verse 12. Though they bring up children, bring up here refers to raising them from infancy, and though would be translated more as for if they bring up children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. The statement here is conditional. If they do get kids... If they do have children, if they do have offspring, those offspring are going to die. I'm going to bereave them. I'm going to make them childless. You might translate it, I'm going to depopulate Israel. The Hebrew word here can refer either to a miscarriage or can even refer to an abortion. Jeremiah 15, verse 7, he says, I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. They did not repent of their ways. Jeremiah 16, he says, They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by the sword and famine. And their carcasses will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. Back in Hosea 9, 12, he says, Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. He said their glory is going to depart. What he really meant was my glory is going to depart. And when the glory of Yahweh leaves the nation of Israel, this is what's going to happen. And he pronounces a woe on them. It's a pronouncement of coming danger. Judgment. Uh, back in Hosea 7, verse 13, he says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. By leaving Yahweh, by turning away from Yahweh, by embracing Baal, they remove themselves from all of his blessing, from all of his provision, from his, from his care, and he departs. Children having descendants was a promise of the Mosaic Covenant. I need someone else who would like to read. Joy? Uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 4. Owen, did you raise your hand? Psalm 127, verse 3. Having children was a promise in the Mosaic Covenant. If you obey, you're going to get these blessings. One of them would be children. Deuteronomy 28, verse 4. That's all the things they were looking for from Baal. 
children for themselves, children for their flocks. And Yahweh said, if you would just obey me, I'll give you all of that. It's Yahweh who gives children. Psalm 127, verse 3. The fruit of the room is a reward. They're from the Lord. They turned from him, so he departed from them. And as he departs, he takes his blessings and his gifts with him. Verse 13. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. He gives another comparison. Ephraim is like Tyre. First of all, where is Tyre? Anybody know? I'm sorry? To the north, yes. There's Jerusalem. There's Tyre. It's to the north. Tyre was a Phoenician port city on the Mediterranean. It was a very strong city that was heavily fortified. Um, that You can learn that in Joshua 19.29 and 2 Samuel 24.7. They had plenty of fortresses. They had plenty of men and arms. And this was a central port for merchants. They were really big in commerce. They were wealthy. And they had a great spot on the Med. Having land like that was really good. Even today, if you get a spot like that, really good for business. Because all the ships can come in. Notice they have a lot of similarities with Israel. Just like Israel, they were strong, they were wealthy. Israel was experiencing economic revival under Jeroboam II. Their military was growing. They thought they were doing really well. And they thought their future was promising. But it wasn't. Just like Tyre, their future is going to be bleak. Look at verse 13 again. But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Children that survive the womb, that make it into the world. Whether they're being reared, they're growing up, or even if they're grown, they're going to be brought out for slaughter. You could say this word could be translated a different way. They will be brought out for execution. The term here is used in the Mosaic Law for executing people who have violated the law. And it's used to describe executing people who have been guilty of serious sin, like apostasy or murder. This is a judgment for their turning from Yahweh and for embracing Baal. He's going to deprive them of children in the womb, and the ones who do survive, they're going to die too. And you might think at this point that Hosea would turn to Yahweh and say, Hey, Yahweh, this is too much. You need to back off a little bit. You need to show them some mercy. You might think that he would be like Abraham who went to Yahweh and said, you know, Hey, if you find ten righteous won't you spare them? But we know what Hosea's response is. It's in verse 14. 
Give them, O Lord, what you will give. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. I don't think the verse needs much explanation. Hosea asks a rhetorical question. What will you give? What's the proper thing for you to give this nation that has rebelled against you, that has rejected you, that is worshiping a false god? And then he answers his own question. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. You might say that Hosea was asking for a little bit of grace. Just don't let them have kids. That would be a mercy in this situation because then they don't have to watch their children die later. They just never have them in the first place. So you could say he was giving some, some level of mercy. But ultimately his question leaves judgment in God's hands. Enact the judgments just as you have decided to act. By the way, this would be considered an imprecatory prayer. Not recommended that you pray this way. I'm just, just saying. Imprecatory psalms like this, this is not what you should be praying. But He leaves it in God's hands. He doesn't question the judgment. He affirms it. He's a man of God and he's living in a sinful nation. And he knows what they've done. Verse 15. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Anybody remember what happened at Gilgal? Gilgal's a really... I, I forgot the word I'm looking for here. Okay. Um, think further back. That is true. They did set up a temple there, but think further back. Back in history. What, what are some of the events that occurred at Gilgal? It's a historic place. That's the word I was looking for. Stones? Okay. Okay. Good. Anything else? Think of kings. Anything happen with a king at Gilgal? Saul became king at Gilgal. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, The elders of Israel said to Samuel, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. It was at Gilgal that the people of Israel first turned away from Yahweh and said, We don't want you to be our ruler. We want a king like all the other nations. And it was at Gilgal that Saul, who would ultimately be a Judgment on them was finally appointed. And Yahweh even says, by picking and deciding to have a king, they were rejecting him. 1 Samuel 8, 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And in judgment, God gives them this guy named Saul. And in 1 Samuel says he was taller than everybody else. He was more handsome. He had all the outward appearances of what people in Israel wanted in a king. But he wasn't the guy God wanted as king. That was a judgment. Saul was crowned at Gilgal, 1 Samuel 11, 14 and 15. 
Saul would end up disobeying Yahweh. He was told to kill, what was the name of that army? I just lost it. Um, Agag. Yeah, Amalekites, there you go. He was told to kill Agag, and he didn't. And then as Calvin said, Gilgal became the center for pagan worship. Uh, Hosea 12, verse 11. Is there iniquity in, oh, yeah, in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Gilgal became synonymous with all the reasons Yahweh hated Israel. It became synonymous with their sin. It became the epitome of wickedness and sinfulness in Israel. Verse 15 again. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. My house here is a reference to the land. It's the land that Yahweh gave them. And this too was also promised in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.26, Deuteronomy 28.63. For time, I won't read those. But God is going to remove them from the land. Into verse 15, I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Princes here just refer to rulers, people in authority. Ezekiel. Ezekiel explains the princes in a different way. Ezekiel 22:27, he says, "Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. The rulers of Israel are people who will kill just to make a buck. Hosea 5 verse 2, he says, "The revolters have gone deep." in depravity, but I will chastise them all. The rulers, the kings, the people in authority in Israel, all of them are corrupt. Even their priests, even their religious leaders, the people who are supposed to lead them to Yahweh are corrupt. Hosea 6 verse 9, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. Everyone in leadership in Israel is in open rebellion. And Yahweh says, I will love them no more. Is he ending permanently his relationship with Israel? No, that's not a permanent end. But this is a fulfillment of something we saw earlier in the book of Hosea. Remember Hosea chapter 3? Amazing Sunday where we only did five verses. Remember that? <laughs> Hosea chapter 3, verse 3. He's talking about the relationship between Gomer and Hosea. And Hosea goes back and he buys Gomer back. Remember that? He purchased his wife, verse 3. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I also will be towards you. Hosea purchased his wife back, and then he withdrew from her and did not love her anymore in the physical sense. That was a picture of Yahweh withdrawing from 
Israel. Verse, chapter 3, verse 4, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. All the means that they have to communicate with Yahweh will be taken away from them, will be stripped from them. And here in Hosea 9, that's being played out. Some would say yes. Yeah. He, he asked, if that, is, that, is that a picture of now? Um, I think this is probably more likely to be the captivity with the Babylonians okay. rather than now. I would take that to mean he's he's talking about the captivity with the Assyrians. Um, but I have seen some commentators who have said that this talks about the present day Israel as well. I think Charles Feinberg said the same thing. Um, all right, chapter 9, verse 16. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay their precious ones of their womb. This is a summary statement. He's just going back and summarizing everything he's already said. Stricken here, you could say they've been afflicted. It's used to talk about being afflicted with a disease or being physically beaten. And here it describes God's judgment falling on the nation. He says their root is dried up. Remember in verses 12 and 13, he said he's going to end their descendants. They're not going to have children anymore. Root here refers to a line of descendants. That's what the actual word means. It can talk about a root of a plant or it can talk about lineage. So why is all of this judgment coming? Why is the nation that was just compared to grapes in the wilderness that bring delight? Why is that nation now going to be deserted and afflicted? If you haven't already received that answer. Yeah. They rejected God. Verse 17. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him and they will be wanderers among the nations. The opening phrase of that verse could be translated, My God rejected them. Which is an interesting parallel to the fact that they had just rejected him. They rejected him as king. They rejected him as their God. They rejected him as their provider. They refuse to listen, to obey his commands, and now Yahweh turns it around on them and says, nope, I reject you. And now they will be removed from their land, and they will be wanderers among the nations. First uh, Kings 14, verses 15 and 16. He says, For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their 
Ashram, provoking the Lord to anger, he will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and with, with which he made Israel to sin. What was the sin of Jeroboam? You guys remember what Jeroboam did? Jeroboam the first? Yeah, he set up the two golden calves in Dan and in Bethel. And he made people worship those two golden calves. So the very first picture here of judgment, Israel is like wild grapes. Second picture of judgment. Israel is like a luxuriant vine. Chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. This isn't the first time someone has used the picture of a vine. Other prophets did the same thing, and usually it had a very negative connotation. It wasn't a good thing. Hosea says of this vine, it is a luxuriant vine. It's a proliferate vine. It, it produces a lot. It provides a lot of grapes, and it provides them quickly. Any farmer would be happy to have a vine that produces grapes like this. But there's a problem with this vine. It doesn't produce fruit for the farmer. It produces fruit for itself. Other prophets refer to Israel as a vine. Isaiah Chapter 5, he said, Concerning his vineyard, my well-beloved, and a vineyard on a fertile hill, this is verse 2, by the way, he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. It's a picture of Yahweh is the gardener, and he, he does all the work to care for and to grow this vine, expecting it's going to produce good fruit for him. And it produces only bad fruit, worthless ones. Ezekiel 15 actually calls the vine worthless. Ezekiel 17 says the vine will be cut off and removed. It will be thrown out. With all the blessings, with all the revelation, with all the guidance Israel received, she should have been producing an abundance of spiritual fruit. All of that should have led her to love Yahweh, to serve Him, to be devoted to Him. Yet the more blessings she received, the more Yahweh gave to her, the more she turned back to Baal and worshipped a false god. Verse 1 again, the more his fruit, the more altars he made, the richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. If you go back to Hosea chapter 2, maybe I should give you guys that. Hosea chapter 2 verse 5, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. That's a picture of Gomer, who thinks these other lovers are providing for her all of her needs. Gomer is a picture of Israel. 
Israel was getting all this provision from Yahweh and they were attributing that provision to Baal. And the more Yahweh provided for them, the more they ascribed to Baal. And the more they worshipped him and the more they used that provision for Baal. Verse 2, their heart is faithless. Okay, who's not reading an NASB today? It's okay. I can give you any version you want. Um, who has an ESV? Would you read the ESV? The heart is what? Verse 2. The heart is false. Anybody have uh, NLT? I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a couple others. NET. The heart is slipping. NLT. What does it say? Chapter two, chapter ten, verse two. Chapter ten, verse two. All right, that's okay. Uh, NIV, the heart is deceitful. HCSB, the heart, uh, their hearts are devious. Fickle is the NLT's translation. The word that he uses here to describe their heart is a word that uh, refers to parceling or dividing up land. Uh, in Numbers, when they were talking about the division of the land, this is the word they use. It means to divide. It's also used in 2 Samuel 6 to describe the division of food, to divide up portions of food for other people. It's used in Psalm 22 to describe the division of clothing. In Proverbs 16, it's used to describe the division of spoils of war. Here, it's applied to the heart. He says, their heart is divided. Israel has divided loyalties. Outwardly, they serve Yahweh. They go through all the rituals. They go through all the ceremonies. They have all the practices of the religion, the festivals. But inwardly, they worship Baal. Even the nation was divided. This was the reason that Elijah went to them. What did Elijah say to them and the priest of Baal? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And you might think, well, this divided heart wasn't intentional. This was an accident. They just didn't know any better. No, this was premeditated. This was intentional. And you know that because verse 2 again, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Another part of a verse that really requires no explanation. They're going to bear their guilt. Judgment for sin is coming. And that judgment included removing all of the high places, all of the altars, all the false gods and images. Verse 3, Surely now they will say, We have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, I'm sorry, as for the king, what can he do for us? Notice verse 3, the word now. 
This is what the people will say in the future when judgment comes. When Yahweh brings judgment upon them, now. When Assyria will, begins their invasion, the people will look at the king and they go, he's not going to help us much. There's no point in going to him. He's a vassal of the Assyrian king anyway. So we can't turn to him. And they even acknowledge the reason why their king is so ineffective and so weak. For we do not revere the Lord. Yahweh had given them a king. He had given them the line of David. They rejected that king. 1 Kings 12. And they appointed their own kings. Jeroboam and the rest of them. Their kings, the kings they appointed, they don't know Yahweh, they don't serve Yahweh, they don't follow, they don't obey. Verse 4, they speak mere words. With worthless oaths, they make covenants. The second phrase here defines the first one. When they say, with worthless, worthless oaths, say that ten times real fast. They make covenants. That defines what it means to speak mere words. Their words are nothing but hot air. They make an oath, but they have no intention of fulfilling it. It's like, you know, I promise I'm going to do this. No intention of fulfilling it. Or doing what they're saying. They're liars. And this certainly applies to the people. Hosea 4, 2, you'll remember... He says there is swearing and deception. So the people are dishonest. The rulers are dishonest. And in fact, 2 Kings 17 actually describes the last king of the north, Hosea. And how he was trying to play both sides of the fence. He was trying to make a deal with Assyria while at the same time trying to make a deal with Egypt. With no intention of fulfilling either one. That's 2 Kings 17, 3 through 4. Verse 4 again, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the, in the furrows of the field. Some have said that judgment here is um, referring to justice. The word here could be either judgment or justice. Amos 6, 12 through 14 describes how unjust they were and how dishonest they were. If you have a nation full of dishonest rulers, don't expect to get a lot of justice from them. I think the context here would be more suited to say that this isn't referring to them being unjust, but this is referring to judgment. And judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds as a result of their dishonesty, as a result of their lying. And their judgment will be just as pervasive, just as destructive as aggressive weeds are that are left unchecked in a garden. All the gardeners in the room know if you leave weeds just running rampant in your garden, you're not going to get anything out of the garden but weeds. The same thing with the destruction, the judgment that's coming. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon. 
Verse 5 is still focusing on judgment. And he's describing what they're going to do when judgment is coming. They're not going to turn to their king because they don't trust him. The king can't do anything for him. And they're really not even going to be in fear for the nation. They're going to be in fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Anybody remember what Beth-Avon is? It's the nickname for the town of Bethel. Bethel is the house of God. Beth-Avon is the nickname he gives. Beth is house, Avon is iniquity. Bethel has become the house of iniquity. And it says when destruction, when judgment comes, the people won't be wondering about how they can repent and how they can turn back to Yahweh. They'll be upset because their golden calf is going away. Because they're going to lose their false religion. Verse 5, indeed, its people will mourn for it, speaking of the golden calf, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from them. Its glory has departed. He was just talking about Yahweh's glory departing from them. And there wasn't a tear shed anywhere. And yet here, when they lose this false god, this idol. They're described as crying and weeping. The term here for priests is, they, um, is not the typical word for, for priests. It doesn't refer to like Levitical priests. The term here for priests refers to pagan priests. Uh, 2 Kings 23.5, Zephaniah 1.4, all of them refer exclusively to pagan priests they will cry out. Literally, they will shout with mourning. The people will mourn. The word there is actually tremble. They will be trembling so much, they will be mourning. Verse, uh, verse 6, the thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob. Again, King Jerob here is, a reference, is not a person's name. There wasn't a King Jerob in history. This is just referring to the king of Israel. Uh, the word actually just means the great one. And the thing here is the calf of Bethel. It's going to be carried off and it's going to be given to the Assyrian king as a gift, as a tribute to the king. Think of the irony of that one. They were sacrificing all of their gold, silver, all of their treasure. They were sacrificing their children to this golden calf to protect them from the Assyrian king. And now that golden calf is going to be used to pay the Assyrian king after he wipes them out. That would be shameful. Verse 6, Ephraim will be seized with shame and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. It's another way of saying they will be embarrassed. That kind of reminds me of um, Ezekiel 6. I don't have time to read the whole thing. Ezekiel 6, verses 2 through 5. He talks about God's judgment on a nation for worshiping false gods. He says, And I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. I will also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols. And I will scatter your bones around their altars. Just as proof that this God can't save you. 
that it's just a piece of stone or a piece of metal. They're going to be humiliated. They're going to be ashamed of their own counsel. They're going to be ashamed of the fact that they ever purported this religion as being real, as being genuine. The whole time they were worshiping a false god that could not save. And in fact, there was nothing that could save them. They were absolutely hopeless when judgment came. Verse 7. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Hosea pictures them as helpless as a stick on water. Take a stick. Next time it floods in San Antonio, go find one of the raging rivers. And take a little stick and throw it on the water. It'll get carried away without resistance. Take a really big log, throw it on the water. It'll get carried away without resistance. It can't do anything to stop it. It won't slow the water down at all. The water will just keep moving. That's Israel. Verse 8, also the high places of Avon, that would be Beth-Avon, the sin of Israel will be destroyed Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. The term destroyed here usually refers to killing people. It refers to a sudden catastrophe, like war or mass killing. Only four times in the Old Testament is this word used for anything other than people, and this would be one of them. Here it just means they're going to be rendered unusable. Every one of their altars, all of their idols, all of them are going to be rendered useless. And they're going to be taken over by thorns and thistles. Anybody remember where that phrase is from? It's out of Genesis 3, from the curse. Genesis 3.18. Now, I didn't know what a thistle was, so I looked it up. That's a thistle. It's a ball of spikes. The people will be gone. Their altars, what's left of them will be there. What's left of their idols will be there. Weeds, thorns, and thistles will take over the promised land. Verse 8, they will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. This judgment is going to be so severe that the people of Israel are going to be wanting sudden death. Just kill us. Let the mountains fall on us. The same mountains and hills that we were going to worship on, let those things collapse and kill us. Yes. Yes. Revelation 6 uses it. Luke 23.30. Isaiah 2 uses it. Verse 9. From the days of Gibeah, I need to move a little faster here. You have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? We've already discussed Gibeah. We discussed it at the end of last week. That was back in Judges 19. That horrendous story that you read out of Judges 19. And he used it to demonstrate the depth of their depravity. And here he's saying Israel has stood in that depravity. They've stayed in that sin, and they have no intention of moving or leaving that sin.
And in that light, he says, he asks the obvious question, will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? Put it another way. Won't divine judgment come to them for this? And the answer is yes. And so when is that going to happen? Verse 10. When it is my desire, I will chastise them. Yahweh's going to bring it about at his time. And I want to point out, he says, I will chastise them. I'm going to discipline them. This is not punishment in the sense of he punished Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the discipline of a loving father. This is the mercy of God. He disciplines his own. And he's going to discipline Israel. Verse 10 again, And the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. The people here being gathered against them are the nations of the world. And they will come and they will face judgment. He says their double guilt. What is the double guilt here? One, forsaking God as their king. Two, worshiping a false god. And so they've incurred double guilt and they're going to get double the punishment. That's the second picture. Let's see the last one here. This will move a little bit faster. Israel is like a trained heifer. Verse 11. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. A heifer here is just a cow. Uh, you guys remember from Hosea 4, verse 16, he said they're a stubborn heifer. They're a stubborn cow. And he said, how can I pasture you like sheep if you're going to behave like stubborn cows? And here he says they love to thresh. This was the task assigned to a cow. And the cow would be able to thresh on the threshing floor and eat at the same time. But this cow has been well trained. Here the cow is pictured as being unyoked. She doesn't have a burden on her. She's not actually having to pull anything. So she can walk through the threshing floor and eat the grain at her leisure. That's Israel. Yahweh has provided everything for her. She lives in comfort. She has no burden. Verse 11, But I will come over her fair neck with a yoke, and I will harness Ephraim. She's going to be disobedient. She's going to be stubborn. Yahweh's going to bring a yoke. The yoke was the big object that held the cow in place. And now she's going to have to carry a burden. She's going to have to till up the hard soil. The people who weren't killed in the judgment are going to be taken away into captivity. Into verse 11, Judah will plow, Jacob will harrow for himself. Judah is the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom wasn't innocent here. The southern kingdom would eventually be taken over by the Babylonians because they too were engaging in idolatry. Jacob here refers to both the kingdoms, both the northern and the southern kingdom. Plowing is just pulling a plow and breaking up the soil. Harrowing is what you do right after you plow. And so both of them are pictured in captivity. But Hosea here is still hoping somebody's going to repent. 
He's still hoping he's going to get the message through. Look at verse 12. So with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to reign in righteousness. He's not suggesting that judgment is going to be avoided. It's an instruction of what they are to do once they are in captivity. He's calling them to covenant faithfulness. So with a view to righteousness, live righteously, obey the commands, worship Yahweh. And if you do that, you will reap according to kindness. Kindness here is the word for loving kindness, the, the faithful covenant love of Yahweh. Break up the fallow ground. Soften your heart. Break up your hard heart. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Seek after Him. Hosea 12, verse 6, Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. He's calling them to repent. Turn back to Yahweh. That's not what they have been doing. Verse 13, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lives. Verse 12 is what they should do. Verse 13 is what they're actually doing. And they'll continue to do. And the principle he's teaching here is real simple. You, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6, verse 8, For the one who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verse 13, because you have trusted in your ways, in your way, in your numerous warriors, this is just a sign of their continued unfaithfulness to Yahweh. They continue to look to themselves. They continue to look to their armies to protect them. And they think that somehow their armies, their political maneuverings, their diplomacy, their ability to pay off kings is somehow going to protect them from judgment. But they refuse to trust in Yahweh. Verse 14, Therefore a tumult will arise among your people. A tumult is just a loud noise. Here it refers to an invasion, the invasion of Assyria. And your fortresses will be destroyed as Shalem destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Who is Shalem? What is Beth Arbel? We don't know. We don't have any record of it. But whatever occurred here is clearly on the minds of the people of Israel because Hosea would not have mentioned it if they didn't know about it. We don't know what happened, but we can't say what happened there was horrific. It was terrible. How do we know that? Look at the rest of verse 14. When mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, the term dashed here is used in several ways. It's used to mowing down young men with bows and arrows. In other places, it's used to describe a far more disturbing practice that was rather common in the ancient world. 2 Kings 8, verse 12, Isaiah 13, 16, it describes the practice of dashing infants on the ground. Regardless of how you interpret it here in Hosea, the picture it paints is terrifying. It, you could translate this as when mothers were slaughtered with their children. 
It's a terrifying picture. Their fortresses, their armies, they won't save them, and neither will their king. Last verse. Thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. Oh my goodness. He's not saying it's only going to happen at Bethel. Bethel is just what he's using to picture the entire nation. Bethel epitomizes their wickedness. And even there in front of your false god, this horrific judgment is going to fall on you. Why? Because of your great wickedness. What he Literally, he says, because of the evil of your evil. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Again, it's another emphatic statement. He's going to die. He's not going to avoid and get out of this judgment. What's the moral of the story? <laughs> don't make God mad. God hates sin. I'll just give you these verses. I don't have time to read them. Psalm 45, verse 7. God hates sin. God also hates those who practice them. sin. Psalm 5, verse 5. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 11, verse 5, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God hates sin. And if the last three classes haven't demonstrated that, I don't know what will. All right, I'm over time. If you have questions, please feel free to see me um, right afterwards. Let me pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you that you have given us a revelation of who you are that we know that you hate sin, that we know that your judgment falls on those who practice sin. But Father, we thank you so much that in Christ we can be liberated from that judgment. We can be uh, saved and spared from that judgment. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, we can look back and learn uh, the lesson from the nation of Israel. And we just ask that you would help us to do that so we would live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.